we are shaped by the actions of others. Even though I grew up in Victoria, I was actually born in Tasmania. So as I grew up, I endured many jokes by people asking what happened to my other head. Now, just in case you don't know what that means, uh, Tasmania has a fairly small population, so the assumption is that couples are more likely to be related to each other, and so their kids will have birth defects like two heads, one need to be removed. Now, of course, it was meant to be a joke, but it didn't always feel that way. And the really annoying thing is, my parents were born and raised in Melbourne. It's just that Dad happened to be working in Tasmania for a couple of years. That's when I was born. But it was because of his actions that I was actually born in a different state. And that shaped how some people treated me. Uh, When I was one, we moved to Melbourne. And then when I was six, we moved up to the country, to a small country town. And as you can imagine, this had a much bigger effect on me. Uh, I loved growing up in the bush. Uh, It was great to be spared some of the challenges that you might face in the city. But it was also hard fitting into a small primary school where I was often treated as the outsider. I was often lonely, I didn't have anyone my age, uh, and we lived a long way from the rest of my family. So the events of my childhood have shaped me, and many of those events were shaped by the actions of others. Now, that's not to say that I'm completely passive and I didn't make any decisions in my life, uh, but for better or worse, I am who I am, largely because of decisions that my parents made, decisions that my teachers made, that my friends and classmates made. So we are all shaped by the actions of others. And this can be a real struggle for those of us who come from a Western background, because we fight for personal freedom and autonomy. We say that each person should be judged based solely on their own merits and not based on their family background or what country they come from. We say that you can be whoever you want to be. There are no limits, no restrictions. Just believe in yourself. But deep down, we know that isn't true. None of us are a blank canvas. None of us are completely independent and free to shape who we will be. The way we view the world is shaped by the actions of others. The joys and pains of this life often flow out of the actions of others. We are shaped by our ancestors, our community leaders, our neighbours, our teachers, our friends. We are who we are largely because of the actions of others. And this can leave us feeling trapped. And this is where the Bible helps, because it actually acknowledges this truth, but then shows how there is a solution to our problems. So it reveals that there are two men who more than anyone else shape who we are. There are two men who tower over all of history, over all of humanity. They are Adam and Jesus. As we'll see in Romans 5, verses 12 to 21, the actions of Adam have shaped every single one of us. He is the cause of the mess we're in. But Jesus provides the solution and we can receive it if we join ourselves to him. We need to let his actions shape who we are. So therefore, salvation is ultimately about moving from Adam to Jesus. And we're going to see why this is the case, and then we're going to see why this is important. So let's jump into it. You'll see on your outline the first uh, big point for our passage. Adam was the first head of humanity, a woeful one. Let me read out verse 12 
of Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Now you can see from verse 14 that Paul is speaking about Adam here. Now, not me, of course, but again, the name given to me by my parents has caused people to make lots of funny comments throughout the years. But we're not talking about me, we're talking about the first Adam, the first man. The man whose creation we read about in Genesis chapter 2. And the man from whom all humans are descended. And what Paul is arguing in this passage is that since Adam was the first head of humanity, we all die because of Adam's sin. Now, some people might be troubled because how in this day and age can we possibly believe that the whole of humanity are descended from a single couple, Adam and Eve? What nonsense. Yeah, I once had a conversation with a science student at La Trobe University who had this very objection against the Bible. And so I pointed out to him that genetics has actually revealed that all humans are descended from a common ancestor. Genetically, it actually fits with the Bible. And whether we accept evolutionary theory or not, one of its key ideas is the hypothesis that all life forms have all descended from one common ancestor. So I put it to you like this. What is harder to believe? That all humans are descended from Adam or that all humans, cats, dogs, fish and birds are descended from a single one-celled organism? Adam as our ancestor isn't that much of a stretch. What is perhaps more challenging to accept is that Adam is the cause of our death. But the Bible clearly shows that Adam's actions have shaped us all. We read in Genesis that God walked with Adam in peace. He told the man to fill the earth and subdue it. He had free reign over the world except for one command. Do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And sadly, Adam failed. He rejected that command from God. He set himself against his creator. And the consequence of this is that he was sent away from God. And since then, all people have been born outside of the garden. Yeah, we don't each get to start inside of the garden, make our own decision whether we're going to follow God or not. That decision's already been made on our behalf and we suffer because of it. We are born under the punishment that Adam received. And this is because Adam was our figurehead, our representative. Now if you look at verse 12 again, you can see that Paul makes this clear because it was Adam's sin and nobody else's that brought death to humanity. After all, think about it this way, Adam's was not the first sin. The devil had already sinned and rebelled against God. He was there in the garden tempting Adam and Eve. Eve sinned before Adam, didn't she? Because she ate the fruit first and then gave it to her husband. Yet it's Adam who cops the blame because he was the representative of humanity. Even though he didn't sin first, his sin was done on behalf of all humanity. He was the head of the human family. His sin brought sin to his descendants. His sin brought death to his descendants. Now, it's possible to read verse 12 as saying Adam was just a pattern. You know, he sinned and so he died. And in a parallel way, all people sin and so all people die as well. 
But I think it's deeper than that. Have a look at verse 15. And if you scan along a little bit, you'll see this. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man. And then verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. Adam's sin brought all humans under the sentence of death. This is because death is the punishment for sin. Now it includes physical death, which is the separation of the spirit and the body. But there's also spiritual death, which is the separation of the human from God. And apart from the Holy Spirit giving new birth, humans are spiritually dead and then we physically die. So this helps us to see that death is actually unnatural for humans. We'll explore this a little bit later on. What this also helps us to see that is Adam is to blame, not the law. Do you notice how Paul starts an argument in verse 12 and he tends to make a contrast. He says, just as, but then he gets distracted, which sometimes happens to Paul. He gets very excited as he's writing his letters. And it seems that it's occurred to him that by speaking of sin, people might wonder how Paul fits in the law of Israel here. Because we know that death is the punishment for breaking God's law. What about those people who live before the law? So Paul writes this in verses 13 and 14. Check them out. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Law is not the cause of human sin and human death. Adam is. And that's why he was a woeful head of humanity. Because of him, we die. But let's not assume that we would do any better. You see, the next sub-point on our outline is that we are born under condemnation and grow up to show that we deserve that condemnation. You know, many people argue that it's not fair that they should be judged because of the actions of Adam. Yet by the time someone is old enough to articulate that type of argument, they've already committed enough of their own sins to deserve judgment based on their own efforts. You know, every single human grows up to show their family resemblance to Adam. You know, it's not as if we are innocent victims who are under a, a death sentence despite being upright, blameless, perfect people. As we've seen in Romans 3 again and again, all people are sinners worthy of condemnation. You know, we don't have to teach children how to be selfish and how to hurt people. In fact, we have to work hard to teach them the right way to live. Good behaviour is learned. And you know, we also have to work hard to maintain our good behaviour. When I'm feeling tired or stressed, I don't default to kindness and love. That's not my natural response. Just ask my kids today. Verses 18 and 19 are helpful in reinforcing this point. This is where Paul finishes that idea. He starts in verse 12. He comes back to it now in verses 18 and 19. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, 
so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Now there's a tricky phrase in there that we need to investigate. Paul says, the many were made sinners. Now is this talking about them being viewed as sinners by God or actually becoming sinners? In other words, is this about status or is this about behaviour or even nature? By looking at verse 18, you might think it's just status. And he wants, that's how I've taken this in the past. Paul says that Adam's trespass led to condemnation for all people. We all come under the sentence of death, whether we feel we deserve it or not. But after thinking about this a bit more, I've changed my mind and see, see what you think. I think Paul also means that we were made sinners in terms of our nature, in terms of our behaviour. We are appointed as sinners in the sense that humanity shares in Adam's nature. You know, the Bible often speaks about the sinful nature or the flesh and we inherit that from our first father. Another way to think of this is original sin. Now listen carefully because this can be easily misunderstood. I don't want you to get confused on this topic. Now original sin doesn't simply refer to the first or original sin that Adam committed. It includes that but also includes the consequences of the first sin. Adam fell and in the language of Romans 1, God handed him over to his sinful desires. His thinking became futile, his foolish heart was darkened and then he passed that on to his children as we see when we read that Cain murdered Abel. We are born under condemnation but we also inherit a depraved mind and a darkened heart from our parents. Apart from the grace of God, this is the state of each and every human from birth to death. It's actually a bleak and miserable picture, isn't it? And this is the consequence of Adam being a woeful head of humanity. It's hard to hear, but we need to hear it. That's why I've got a BTW as our next point. By the way, federal or representative headship is a hard truth, but a helpful truth. I haven't used that language yet, but what we've been talking about is federal headship. We've already talked about how we're not isolated individuals, the actions of others affect us. But what we can add now is that others can represent us or act on our behalf. In Australia we have a federal government that represents the nation, the people of the nation. And the Prime Minister, well he's the federal head and he represents the people of Australia to the world. When Scott Morrison speaks in his formal role, he speaks on our behalf. When he goes overseas, it's almost like we go with him as he represents us to the world. When he sits and eats fish and apple pie with Donald Trump, we are sitting there with him eating fish and apple pie with Donald Trump. Maybe you don't want that picture in your head, but hopefully you know what I mean. And when it comes to salvation, we have representative heads as well. Adam and Jesus. What they do affects us. And this can be hard for us to accept, but it really does help us make sense of salvation and make sense of our world. First of all, federal headship explains the prevalence of sin. So we know that the world is full of evil and nastiness, but if people were born, say, morally good or morally neutral, we each had our own chance, then we might expect to see less problems in the world. We might find it easier to be good people ourselves. But we know that it's really hard to be really good. 
Well, this can be explained by Adam's sin causing us to all be born into sin. That's why we struggle so much. This also explains why it's important to see Adam as an historical figure. He's not simply a character in a story who's used as a mirror to understand our own sinful tendencies. He's a real person who has brought us under the power of sin. Now secondly, federal headship explains why even babies die. This might seem like a weird statement. I understand this might be a sensitive topic for many of you, but I think this is helpful to think through. So think about it this way. If humans were actually born good, or each person was kind of born neutral and would stand on their own merits, then how do we explain why babies die? Surely they haven't had the chance to commit any actual sins, and so therefore surely their deaths can't be the result, can't be punishment for sin. So what are the alternatives? One option is that, well, maybe babies do somehow commit sins. I don't know what that would be, maybe crying or filling a nappy. But what is it that a baby could do that could bring death upon itself? And so the second option, which I think most people are more inclined to, is to say, well, it's not, death is not a consequence of sin at all. We just accept that it's a natural part of life and we just need to stop getting upset about it. But that's to deny the badness of death. Neither of these options really make sense and neither fit with the Bible. So the third option, the best option, is that we are all condemned because of Adam's sin. It affects all of us from the oldest to the youngest in the human family. That might make you feel uncomfortable. But that's the point. Sin is terrible. Death is terrible. That's why we need a saviour. That's why we need good news. And thirdly and finally, this hard but helpful truth about federal headship explains how it is that Jesus can die for us. So remember our big idea for today? Salvation is about moving from Adam to Jesus. And if we believe that we can't be blamed for Adam's actions, then we're saying we believe that someone can't represent us before God. But if that's true, then how can Jesus represent us before God? We want God to judge Jesus for our sins rather than judging us. We want his death on the cross to pay for our sins and to remove our condemnation. We want his righteousness to be credited to us. And so if you want to accept the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for you, then you also need to accept the bad news that Adam sinned for you. If you won't accept Adam as your federal head, then how can you accept Jesus as your federal head? And maybe you've still got more questions, but hopefully this has helped you to see why this idea is actually helpful. So let's move on to our next main point. Jesus is the second head of humanity, a wonderful one. Paul says in verse 14 that Adam was a pattern of the one to come. In verse 15, it's Jesus Christ. He is a representative head like Adam. And look again at verse 18 and 19. Adam's trespass brought condemnation, but Jesus' righteous act brings justification and life. The disobedience of Adam made many sinners, but the obedience of Jesus will make many righteous. This is the contrast that Paul began in verse 12 but then got distracted. Paul is arguing here that there are two great figures who tower over history. 
And perhaps the Jewish people would have pointed to Abraham and Moses, you know, the, the father of promise, the father of law. But Paul points to two greater figures, Adam and Jesus. They are global in their significance and they stand at the two key points of history. Adam, the father of condemnation, Jesus, the father of salvation. And every single Adam, uh, every single human is either in Adam or in Christ. Every single human is either under sin or under God's grace. Just as Adam acted in a way that affects countless souls, so too Jesus acted in a way that affects countless souls. There are two heads of humanity. And so when we are saved, we move from Adam to Jesus. But what makes Jesus such a wonderful head of humanity is not just that he offers salvation, but that he's a more powerful head. As you can see in your outline, his gift is more powerful than Adam's trespass. First of all, everything that Adam stuffed up, Jesus fixes. He beats death so that it no longer reigns over Christians. In fact, we can now reign in life. Verse 21 says that we have eternal life. Jesus obeyed God so as to undo the disobedience of Adam. And more than that, he merits righteousness on our behalf. We can now be declared righteous. And as we saw in verse 19, we have the hope of being made righteous in the future in terms of all our actions and thoughts. Just as Adam's actions gave us a sinful nature, Jesus' actions give us a new nature, which will one day be perfected and we will no longer sin. But Jesus isn't just an alternative, you know, an equal but opposite to Adam. He's actually a superior head of humanity. Check out verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Paul says the gift is not like the trespass. He then explains that Jesus himself showed grace by dying in our place and then his gift of grace was offered to God so that God could then offer the gift of his grace to us so that we could be forgiven. Check out verse 6. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. If one sin brings condemnation, then what do you think many trespasses deserve? If thousands of years of sin has racked up a huge bill of death, yet the gift from Jesus has paid the massive debt. Jesus' death is more powerful than Adam's rebellion. Check out verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? God's provision of grace is abundant. It will never be used up. This means we can be secure in our righteousness. Jesus secures grace, justification, eternal life for us. But we only receive these if we're actually in Christ. Salvation is about moving from Adam to Jesus. And how do we move? It's by faith. We've already seen in Romans 3 that we are saved by faith. 
We saw last week in Romans 5 verse 1 that we are justified by faith. And in verse 2, it's through that same faith that we stand in God's grace. Faith in Jesus is the way to be free of condemnation and to receive justification. It's not through following the law. Now what Romans 5 clearly shows is that Adam and Jesus are the two heads of humanity. Every single person belongs to one or the other. Either you are in Adam and under God's condemnation or you are in Jesus and under grace. There are no alternatives. There are no middle ground. Now this might be new to you. This might be confusing or challenging. You might be unsure about this. So please do come and speak to me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you. But we're going to spend some time now looking at why all of this is so important. I want to give you three reasons why it matters that salvation is about moving from Adam to Jesus. The first reason is that our federal head determines our primary identity. You think about how you would describe yourself to another person. Maybe you'd mention your family heritage, where you went to school, your strengths, your achievements, the qualifications you've earned, what your hobbies and interests are. All of these contribute to your identity. But if you have faith in Jesus, then he determines your primary identity. First and foremost, you are a Christian. You're a Christian university student, a Christian nurse, a Christian mother, a Christian Australian, a Christian alcoholic, a Christian high school dropout, a Christian porn addict, a Christian divorcee, a Christian survivor of abuse, a Christian Labor voter, a Christian Liberal voter, a Christian Greens voter, a Christian lawyer, a Christian retiree, a Christian immigrant. Whatever you might be, Whatever you might have done, whatever has been done to you, your primary identity is shaped by Jesus. So when the Father in heaven looks down at you, he sees Jesus. And he sees you as his beloved child. And this is wonderful news because no amount of sin or failing or weakness or stupidity on your part can trump that aspect of your identity. No amount of sickness or suffering or struggles can trump that aspect of your identity. No foolish or hurtful or shameful or wicked deed done against you by another person can trump that aspect of your identity. You are safe and secure in Christ because he is your head. You don't have to earn your way into Jesus. You don't have to fight to be in Jesus. You don't have to be good to remain in Jesus. You just have to trust in him and he'll take care of the rest. Now the flip side of this truth is that if you're not in Jesus by faith, then you're still in Adam and you face death and judgment. It doesn't matter how nice or generous or intelligent or spiritual someone is if they're not a Christian. Now we can be confronted sometimes when we meet people who aren't Christians who are better than us. Whatever they might have to their credit, the primary thing credited to them in God's eyes is Adam's sin and the condemnation that comes from that. And this leads to the next reason why it matters that salvation is about moving from Adam to Jesus. Everyone needs to be saved and everyone can be saved. See, it's not just really bad people or spiritually weak people or guilt-ridden people who need to be saved. Every human needs to be saved because every human is descended from Adam. 
There's no middle ground. There's no neutral space. There's no alternative. You are either in Adam or in Christ. But the amazing news is that anyone can be saved because anyone can move from Adam to Jesus by faith. Christianity, it's not a white man's religion. It's not a middle class religion. It's not an old person's religion. It's for everyone and anyone. Just as all humans are connected to Adam, all humans can become connected to Christ through faith. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then just make the change. It's very easy. Just put your trust in Jesus. He took the condemnation that you deserve. Shift your allegiance to him and let him shape your identity. And trust me, he's a much better head than Adam is. And the third and final reason why it matters that salvation is about moving from Adam to Jesus is because Jesus is far greater than Adam. Yeah, the grounds of the Christian's assurance, and we saw that last week, didn't we? Romans 5, 1 through to 11, we have great assurance. The grounds of our assurance is not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. Paul shows that Jesus is like Adam in that he's a head of a new humanity, but he's far greater than Adam. And so we can have absolute confidence that Jesus can rescue us. Jesus can preserve us. Jesus can transform us. Jesus' grace trumps Adam's sin. And so he can move you totally and completely out of Adam. Jesus' grace trumps your sins even your future sins. So he will, assure, he will ensure that you'll never move out of Jesus back into Adam. Once you're in Jesus, you are safe in Jesus. So of course, we are responsible for our own actions, but we are also greatly shaped by the actions of others. And no two men have shaped humanity more than Adam and Jesus. But because of his obedience we have access to abundant grace in Jesus. And that's why salvation is about moving from Adam to Jesus and we do that by faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your abundant grace. We thank you that you give this to us not because of anything we do but because of the obedience of Jesus. We thank you for the wonderful gift of his death on the cross in our place which enables us to escape the condemnation that Adam brought upon all of humanity. Help us to trust in Christ, to stand firm in him, and to know that nothing can overcome the grace you have shown us in Jesus. Amen.